Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 17 of the UK's first Freedom of Information podcast. I'm Ibrahim Hassan. In January and February 2009, the Information Commissioner published 27 decisions, whilst the Information Tribunal published 11. I'm here to guide you through some of these. In this episode, amongst others, we'll be discussing decisions on requests for information in electronic form, the first ministerial veto of a tribunal decision, Section 35 and the public interest test, when statistics about properties can be personal data, correspondence between Princess Diana and the government, information about job applicants, disclosure of major IT contracts, and the first Freedom of Information appeal to the House of Lords. Section 11 of the Act allows an applicant to express a preference as to the way he wants the requested information communicated by the public authority. In determining whether this is reasonably practicable, the public authority can take account of all the circumstances, including the costs of doing so. Increasingly, the trend amongst applicants is to ask for information in electronic format. The question of whether the public authority can refuse to do this was considered in a decision involving the student loans company dated the 4th of February. The complainant made a request to the company for a document entitled Class Training Manual. Following a decision issued on the 30th of July 2008, the company had already supplied the information in hard copy format. The complainant repeated his request, stating that he'd asked for the information in electronic form. The company refused, arguing that in order to ensure that neither confidentiality nor copyright were breached, it would have to put safeguards in place to ensure that the manual was not posted on websites nor reproduced without permission. This would require a carefully drafted legal document signed by the complainant agreeing to these terms. In the company's view, the costs and time required to prepare such a document would mean that it is not reasonably practicable to provide the manual in electronic form. The Commissioner felt that these arguments fell outside the scope of Section 11. With regard to copyright, he emphasised that freedom of information does not provide an implied licence for commercial or other exploitation of released information, and that any person to whom information is released is still bound by an obligation to respect any intellectual property rights held within it. Any steps the company considered it needs to take in order to allay its concerns in relation to copyright and confidentiality cannot be taken into account in deciding whether any format request is reasonably practicable. This decision seems to suggest that where information is available in an electronic format, then it should be supplied in that format if requested, unless it would be unduly expensive or time-consuming to do so. As far as copyright issues go, both the Commissioner and the Ministry of Justice Guidance recommends that when supplying information, the applicant should be warned of the consequences of copyright infringement. Section 35 is an exemption which is only available for information held by central government departments and the National Assembly for Wales. Subsection 1a exempts from access information relating to the formulation and development of government policy. Having concluded the exemption is engaged, a public authority needs to consider whether the public interest favours the maintenance of the exemption. In February 2007, the Information Tribunal set out 11 principles that should be used when applying the public interest test in connection with Section 351A. This was an appeal decision involving the DFES and the Information Commissioner and the Evening Standard. 
These principles were recently applied by the Commissioner in a decision involving the Home Office dated the 20th of January. The complainant requested any recorded information held on the decision to ban members of the police from membership of the British National Party. The public authority refused the request, citing, amongst others, the exemption provided by Section 351A, Formulation and Development of Government Policy, and Section 362B, Effective Conduct of Public Affairs. The Commissioner ruled that both exemptions were applied correctly. However, he found that the Home Office failed to provide a valid refusal notice within 20 working days and that the refusal notice was inadequate for the purposes of Section 17. Probably the most controversial Freedom of Information decision since the Act came into force was published by the Information Tribunal on the 27th of January 2009. In Cabinet Office and Dr Christopher Lamb and the Information Commissioner, the Tribunal decided to uphold the ruling by the Information Commissioner that minutes of Cabinet meetings from 2003 should be released. These refer to meetings that discuss the Attorney General's legal advice about the Iraq War. The government argued that releasing such minutes would impede proper recording of free and frank discussion within Cabinet. However, the Tribunal ruled that the public interest in maintaining the exemption did not outweigh the public interest in disclosure. It gave weight to various factors including that the minutes recorded a momentous decision in British history to go to war with Iraq, disclosure would allow better understanding and scrutiny of the decision-making process, and that some of the information had already been disclosed through other channels, thereby reducing the detrimental impact of this disclosure. The Tribunal was at pains to point out that this was by no means setting a precedent and future cases would have to be examined on their own facts. Despite this, the government moved quickly to override the decision. On the 24th of February, the Lord Chancellor Jack Straw issued the first ever ministerial veto in his statement of reasons, he argued that disclosure would be contrary to the public interest, damaging to the doctrine of collective responsibility, and detrimental to the effective operation of cabinet government. Use of the veto has caused a big fuss. The Campaign for Freedom of Information said that it was an extremely retrograde step. It'll be interesting to see whether the government will make more use of the veto in the future in relation to unfavourable tribunal decisions or whether it will follow the more normal course of appeal to the High Court. Almost 12 years after her death, interest in the life of Princess Diana continues undiminished. In a decision involving the Cabinet Office, dated the 29th of January, the complainant made a request for information relating to communications with Diana and or her representatives. The Information Commissioner upheld the decision of the Cabinet Office that the Section 37 exemption applied communications with the royal family. In applying the public interest test, it gave weight to the fact that the correspondence is of a personal nature and does not comment on government or public policy. The Information Commissioner's ruling notes that public interest in the disclosure of such correspondence is likely to be strongest in cases where the information relates to the performance of a public role or function as opposed to private or personal matters. The ruling emphasised the importance of drawing a clear distinction between matters of public interest and matters about which the public may be merely curious. The Commissioner also highlighted that members of the Royal Family, some of whom are referenced in the correspondence, enjoy the same data protection rights as other individuals. In relation to a request which constitutes the personal data of third parties, 
Section 45b1 further excludes a public authority from having to confirm or deny whether the information is held if to do so would breach one of the data protection principles. These provisions were applied by the UK Borders Agency in a decision dated the 20th of January. The complainant requested information about the work permit application of another individual. The agency refused to confirm or deny it held the information and the commissioner agreed with this approach. He ruled that section 45b1 applied because in responding to the request the agency would have to disclose information which, if held, would constitute the personal data of the third party and would breach a data protection principle. A similar decision was reached in a decision involving the Metropolitan Police Service dated the 24th of February. The complainant asked the police for information about whether the record of a named officer's disciplinary hearing had been disclosed to any parties and if so, requested the details of those parties. The commissioner agreed with the police's refusal to confirm or deny the existence of the information on the basis of section 45b1. The commissioner was persuaded by the argument of the police that disclosure of whether or not a particular officer had been subject to a disciplinary hearing would be unfair and contrary to that officer's reasonable expectation of privacy. He noted that the officer in question in this case does not hold a very senior grade, therefore he believed that he would be less likely than a more senior officer to have any expectation that the public would be told whether or not he had been the subject of disciplinary action. Ever since the Information Tribunal decision involving the London Borough of Bexley about the disclosure of addresses of empty properties, it's been accepted that addresses can amount to personal data. But does this mean that addresses will always be exempt under Section 40? In a decision involving Sussex Police dated the 9th of February, the complainant requested the number of reports of antisocial behaviour and a description of the type or category of antisocial behaviour reported for a specified postcode area and time period. The police argued that confirming or denying whether reports of antisocial behaviour have been made would constitute personal data. This is based on the fact that there are only 15 properties in the specified postcode area which the police believe is sufficiently low to enable information to be linked to the individual occupants of those properties. It also suggested that the perpetrators of antisocial behaviour could be identified through confirmation or denial as to whether this information is held. The Commissioner accepted that addresses constitute personal data. However, here the information was being requested about a number of properties, not a single property. He said that it is not clear how anything could be learnt about an individual as a result of confirmation or denial of whether the information was held. The Commissioner also said that he would have accepted that confirmation or denial constitutes personal data had the request been for information relating to a single property or significantly fewer properties than the 15 in the postcode area specified by the request. It's now common practice for unsuccessful job applicants to the public sector to make FOI requests for information about the recruitment process as well as about other candidates. Of course the latter will be personal data and covered by the Section 40 exemption. However, as a recent decision shows, this cannot be used by the public authority to exempt all information. In a decision involving Leicester City Council dated the 12th of January, the complainant who worked for the council, applied for two internal vacancies unsuccessfully. He requested some information about the recruitment process. 
including copies of the application form submitted by the other applicants suitably redacted as necessary. He also wanted an indication which of the information requested related to the successful candidate. The Council refused the request for the application forms on the grounds the exemption at Section 40 for personal data applied. The Commissioner decided that the exemption applied in respect of some of the information on the application forms, but that it did not justify withholding information in its entirety. He considered that some information about applicants' experience and qualifications could be provided in an anonymised form without breaching their data protection rights. The Commissioner directed the Council to provide this information to the complainant, either by redacting the application forms, so that all information from which a candidate could be identified was removed, or by supplying brief summaries of applicants' experience and qualifications. The Commissioner agreed that by identifying the forms or summaries belonging to the successful applicant, the Council cannot avoid making a disclosure of personal data about them. However, he concluded that such a disclosure would not be unfair. In doing so, he took account of the seniority of the posts, the job specifications that set out minimum requirements for all applicants, any damage or distress that might occur to the data subject as a result of any disclosure, and the fact that there is a strong public interest in ensuring that public authorities have suitably qualified and experienced people in senior positions and in providing access to information about how a public authority spends public money. An important point was also made for all those charged with drafting refusal notices under the Act. Section 17.1b requires a public authority to specify any exemption it applies in its refusal notice. The Commissioner in this case considered that in order to fully comply with this requirement, the notice should specify the exemption right down to the relevant subsection where applicable. In this case, the refusal notice only referred to Section 40 of the Act, and so the Council was held not to have complied with Section 17.1b. Requests for information about large-scale public sector procurement contracts are very much the norm in this era of freedom of information. A much-talked-about project is the NHS National Programme for IT, known as MPFIT. The programme was designed to deliver a new integrated IT system and services to help modernise the NHS. However, it has not been without its critics, both from within and outside the NHS community. The recent Commissioner decision involving the Department of Health, dated the 29th of January, concerned a request for a copy of a contract between the Department and BT, known as the N3 contract, particularly the legal terms and conditions. The complainant specifically stated that he was not interested in certain information, including contract prices and charges and detailed technical specifications, accepting that these may be commercially confidential. The Department relied on various exemptions to refuse access, including Section 41, Breach of Confidence, and Section 43, Commercial Interests. The Information Commissioner disagreed with this approach. Section 41 can only be relied upon in respect of information which was obtained by a public authority from another person. Here the Commissioner was not satisfied that this was the case, as the information contained within the contract had resulted from negotiations between the parties. This is in line with the Information Tribunal decision involving Derry City Council and the Information Commissioner, which we discussed in Episode 4 of these podcasts. With regard to Section 43, the Department argued that disclosure would harm the commercial interests of the contractor 
because it would have allowed the contractor's competitors to draw conclusions about the positions it would take in relation to future contracts. The Commissioner disagreed with this analysis for four reasons. Firstly, the N3 contract was unique. It was designed to address a very specific service that was required to be delivered. It would therefore have been significantly different from other contracts the contractor might seek to enter into in the future. Secondly, by the time of the request, the contract was already 14 months old. This is important given the rapidly changing and competitive nature of the field of IT. It would seem very likely that any tenders submitted or contracts negotiated subsequent to the request would have significantly been different in terms of what was contained within them to the provisions contained in this particular contract. Thirdly, by the time of the request, parts of the original contract had been renegotiated. Therefore, the original contract would no longer present a true picture of the current contractual obligations of the parties. Finally, the Commissioner noted that the complainant had sought to exclude from his request information which may be regarded as more likely to be of a sensitive nature, such as pricing and financial information, as well as certain technical information. For these reasons, it was felt that disclosure would not prejudice the contractor's commercial interests. The Department also argued that disclosure would harm its own commercial interests. In its view, disclosure would have provided commercial providers with an advantage during active negotiations with regard to other contracts in the NPFIT programme. Again, the Commissioner disagreed, pointing out that the N3 contract was sufficiently unique that direct comparisons could not realistically be drawn with other contracts in the programme. In coming to his conclusion about Section 43, the Commissioner also relied on the comments of the Information Tribunal in an appeal involving the Department of Health and the Information Commissioner in November 2008. The Tribunal in that appeal made its comments in the context of considering the extent to which similar information about an IT contract should be disclosed. In reaching that decision, the Tribunal placed significant reliance on the guidance issued by the Office of Government Commerce on the application of the Act to various types of contractual information. The Tribunal stated that the guidance, entitled OGC Civil Procurement Policy and Guidance Version 1.1, and the DCA Working Assumptions note accompanying it was, and I quote, a useful approach to dealing with an information request, and in broad terms it reflects the approach that we have adopted in our consideration of this contract. The Tribunal went on to make reference to 12 areas within a contract which the guidance indicates should normally be disclosed by a public authority. These are service level agreements, product stroke service verification procedures, performance measurement procedures, contract performance information, incentive mechanisms, criteria for recovering sums, pricing mechanisms and invoicing arrangements, payment mechanisms, dispute resolution procedures, contract management arrangements, project management information, and exit strategies and break options. In the present case, the Commissioner noted that these 12 areas cover a significant amount of information contained in the N3 contract with BT. The Tribunal went on to state that it would expect the Department of Health in any future cases of this type to consider the information requested by direct reference to these guidelines and in the event that the guidance was not followed in any respect be able to provide the Commissioner with a clear explanation of why it was departing from the general principles set out.
The commissioner noted that the department in the present case had not provided him with any specific arguments as to why the general principles contained in the guidelines should not apply in this case, and therefore why the information should be withheld. These are very useful decisions, well worth a read by those who are requested information about large-scale procurement contracts, especially in the area of IT. The guidance referred to by the Tribunal can be found on the OGC website, which is www.ogc.gov.uk in the Documents section. If you can't find it, please send me an email. I'll be discussing this and other latest guidance and cases during my forthcoming Freedom of Information, Contracts and Commercial Confidentiality workshop in London. And finally, February 2009 saw the first decision by the House of Lords involving the English Freedom of Information Act. I say English because the Lords has already ruled on the Scottish Act in an appeal involving the Common Services Agency and the Scottish Information Commissioner. In the present case, the BBC lost an appeal about disclosure of a 2004 internal report about its Middle East coverage known as the Balin Report. The Law Lord's decision was not about the merits of whether the report should be published, it was about the procedural question of whether the Information Tribunal has the jurisdiction to rule on such cases where the Commissioner has previously decided that the request was outside the realm of the Freedom of Information Act in the first place because it involved information held by the BBC for the purposes of journalism. The Lords determined, against the views of the Court of Appeal and the House of Lords, that the Tribunal does have the right to consider such cases, so its ruling in favour of publication is valid. This is a long-running legal saga which has not yet ended. Assuming the BBC maintains its line, the substantive arguments on whether the report should be made public can now move on to the High Court. Act Now Training now offers a Freedom of Information helpline service. This is designed to supplement your internal freedom of information expertise by acting as a sounding board or signpost service for you to discuss your FOI or environmental requests and possible responses. Through the helpline I'll be available to guide you through the relevant areas of law, discuss possible exemptions and how to deal with any complaints. That concludes episode 17 of the Freedom of Information podcast. It's now two and a half years since I started this service. Thanks to everyone for their help and support. All previous scripts and programmes are available to purchase on a CD-ROM and a paper manual. Act Now is also now offering the ISEB Certificate in Freedom of Information. Courses will be in Manchester and London beginning in May. If you'd like to know more, please email info at actnow.org.uk Thank you for listening. Until the next time, goodbye.